0: Hello, welcome back. This is Michael Camarina here with the Rock Community Church, continuing in our study of 1 John. We are entering chapter two this time, and we are gonna be looking at the first two verses of 1 John chapter two. But before we jump into those verses, I wanna back up a little bit, a few verses. Uh, I wanna look at the second half of 1 John chapter one, just to to refresh our memory about uh, what we just studied Uh, in, in 1 John chapter 1. So let's read verses 5 through 10. It says, This is the message we have heard from him and announced to you, that God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. If we say that we have fellowship with him and yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, And the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. Those verses uh, have to do, well, first of all, they have to do with the doctrine of sin, that we are sinful, and that that God forgives us if we confess, if we are confessors uh, that we are sinful. God cleanses us from all unrighteousness. And it also talks about how God is light, right? Right? And that if we walk in the light, then we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus does indeed cleanse us. But if we say we have fellowship with him, and yet walk in the darkness, we lie, and we do not practice the truth. This is a very strict standard of obedience. That if we walk in the darkness, then we uh, we do not have fellowship with God. In fact, as you go through the book of 1 John, you will see an uncompromising list of directives that the believer must follow in order to be considered in the fellowship, quote-unquote, or in the kingdom. There's just a strict standard in, in 1 John, and as you go through this book of 1 John, it can be somewhat overwhelming, right? I mean... For example, in 1 John chapter 1, we just read, John says that Christians don't walk in the darkness. They confess their sins. In 1 John 2, verse 3, By this we know that we have come to know him, if we keep his commandments. The very next verse, the one who says, I have come to know him and does not keep his commandments, is a liar, and the truth is not in him. A couple verses later, the one who says he abides in him ought himself to walk in the same manner as he walked. A few verses later, First John 2, 9, the one who says he is in the light and yet hates his brother is in the darkness until now. First John two fifteen, 15, do not love the world nor the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. 1 John chapter 3 verse 6 No one who abides in him sins and no one who sins has seen him or knows him wow 1 John 3:10 Anyone who does not practice righteousness is not of God nor the one who does not love his brother 1 John 3:15 Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer <laughs> And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. And finally, 1 John 4, 8. The one who does not love does not know God. For God is love. And it just goes on and on. There's, these are just a few of the verses in 1 John. Uh, and you know you can read through these verses. And you, you can say to yourself, well, I... I don't do that very well i'm i'm not I'm not nearly perfect in the I don't even come close to being perfect or obedient in these things right i I know I've read through some of these things throughout my walk and just said well i <laughs> I'm not there and you know what if if all we had in 1 John is this list of divine laws that we are told are absolutely necessary to uphold in order to be in God's kingdom. If that's all we had is this list of laws, then we would have every right to be anxious. We would have every right to feel as though that God will not say to us, enter into the joy of your master. John is so absolute in this epistle, right? Christians don't sin. Christians love the brethren. We obey God's word. We practice righteousness. We reject the world system. These are intense statements, very black and white. There's no middle ground in these statements. And, and, and John is just repetitious uh, in making these statements. And he's relentlessly repetitious as he, as he circles back to these previous arguments over and over throughout the book of 1 John. And so it might be easy for us to conclude on the basis of these statements that only people with a perfect love, a perfect obedience, only people that are a perfect light can have the assurance of being a true Christian, can have the assurance of being in heaven, in God's kingdom. I mean, I, I look at these statements sometimes, like I said, and I... I I say to myself, I don't qualify. My love is not perfect. I'm not sinless. I don't obey perfectly. I'm sometimes attracted to the world. I don't pass the test. And we all would probably make the same conclusion about ourselves, if we're being honest. We all might make that same conclusion about ourselves and our eternal fu- salvation, except for 1 John 2, verses one 1- and two. So let's read those verses. It says, My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. And he himself is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only but also for those of the whole world. That verse is huge. Those two verses come as a sigh of relief. They're absolutely crucial. If not for these verses, where would we be, right? Not in God's kingdom, that's for sure. We need this verse. Like we need air. We need this verse. 1 John, it it was not written to make us afraid. It wasn't written to make us horrified that we don't meet God's standard. Right? 1 John sets God's standard and calls you to it, right? Holiness. Calls you to righteousness, love. But it wasn't written to make us afraid that we don't meet those standards. It's intended to fill us with joy and to take the burden of sin off of us. Right? If anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. Now let's look at what that means, that Jesus is our advocate. First of all, the word "if," right? If anyone sins, he says. The word "if" in the Greek, uh, in, in in the Greek language, there are certain classes of conditional statements. Uh, I'm not an expert by any means on Greek, but I I know that there's these various classes of conditional statements, and uh, you know, n- numerous Greek cases for words can denote uh, certain meanings and so forth, and, and So, for the word if, some cases for the word if might mean, you know, if and it probably won't happen. Or if and it might happen. Or if and it won't happen. But this Greek word for the word if is if and it will happen. If and it no doubt will happen. So, if anyone sins... And you will sin, is what he's saying. If anyone sins, and you will sin, now here comes the pronoun, we. We have an advocate with the Father. We, remember, John is writing to the church, we refers to believers. If anyone sins, then we, the church, we, the believers, have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. We have an advocate. The Greek word for advocate, it, uh, the Greek word is parakletos. And, and the picture here is one of a courtroom scene. God is on his bench, and he has the authority and the responsibility to uphold his perfect and his holy law. And he intends to execute justice. We are the indicted sinner sitting in the courtroom. Jesus is our defense lawyer pleading our case before the judge. He is our advocate. And so this is where we see salvation in all its majesty. Right? We understand that salvation is an act of grace. It's an act of mercy. Now, let's... let's Just briefly, talk about grace and mercy. Mercy is not getting what you deserve. Right? I deserve punishment, and I'm not going to get it. That's mercy. God is merciful to us. Grace takes it a step further. Grace is getting something that you don't deserve. So not only am I not going to be punished... But I'm also going to be given the greatest gift ever. Eternity with Jesus in heaven. I don't deserve that. That's grace. So mercy is not getting what you deserve. Grace is getting what you don't deserve. So someone asks, oh, well, where is the justice? Where is the justice in all of that? I thought, I thought God is going to render justice. Where is the justice if we're given grace and mercy? Well, we need to understand that salvation is an act of justice. There is justice in salvation. Justice was not ignored when God extended grace to us, justice was not compromised. Justice was not done away with when God extended grace to us. Justice was not sacrificed. Rather, justice was, sac- was satisfied on the cross. Justice was satisfied on the cross. It was satisfied to the point that grace and justice met in perfect union on the cross. Someone says, well, How is that justice? Right? How is it justice if a sinner goes to heaven? To, to, to put it in, in kind of terms we can visualize, how is it justice if, for example, a murderer goes to heaven? Listen. For the murderer who confesses his sin to to God and repents from his sin, puts his faith and trust in Jesus Christ and his work on the cross, for that murderer who does those things, his, his sins were paid for on the cross. Punishment was administered for those sins, for those murders that occurred. That judgment, that punishment, was put on Jesus Christ on the cross. Justice was not sacrificed on the cross. Jesus paid the price. Punishment was administered. The judgment was put on Jesus. Listen to Romans 1, verses 16 and 17. It says, I am not ashamed of the gospel, Paul says. For it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Now watch this. For in it, in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. The righteousness, the justice of God is revealed from faith to faith. Numbers fourteen eighteen: the Lord is slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness forgiving iniquity and transgression, but he will by no means clear the guilty. Proverbs eleven twenty one, Assuredly, the evil man will not go unpunished. Nahum 1, 3. The Lord will by no means leave the guilty unpunished. God is a just God. In Matthew 10 and Luke 12, uh, it even says that uh, even our hidden sins, or or even the sins that are unknown by the sinner. Those sins will be revealed. God is just. Every sin will be punished. For the believer, Jesus takes the punishment. For the non-believer, the, the sinner themselves are punished. And so, in God's divine courtroom, we are indicted, we are guilty, we are deserving of punishment. But our advocate goes before the judge. He advocates with the Father. And the judge is an absolute judge. He's a holy judge, a just judge. He is a judge that demands absolute perfection. But he's also a compassionate judge, loving, forgiving, and he's our Savior. Right? Jesus advocates for us, uh, he advocates for his followers, his, his sheep. And how does he do that? Well, here's where verse 2 comes in it says, He Himself is the propitiation for our sins. He is the propitiation for our sins. Jesus could never be our advocate if he was not also the propitiation for our sins. In the Greek word there, in the original Greek, it simply means an appeasement or a satisfaction. So Jesus is the propitiation for our sins. He's the appeasement for our sins, the satisfaction of judgment, of, of justice, of Jesus died on the cross, and his death appeased God and his justice. Jesus took our punishment for us. How amazing is that? How loving is that, right? And how how is it that Jesus' death was an acceptable punishment? How is it that the blood of Jesus is is an acceptable propitiation? Well, 2 Corinthians 5.21 tells us, said, he made him who knew no sin, that's Jesus, he made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. There, in the first half of that verse, there's the doctrine of imputation. He made him who knew no sin, so the sinless Jesus. He made the sinless Jesus to be sin. On our behalf. In other words, our sin is imputed onto Jesus. Think of it like an accounting thing. Our our sin is taken off our account and put on the account of Jesus so that he bears all our sins. Now, the second half of that verse shows us the doctrine of double imputation, as it's called. The doctrine of double imputation says not only is our sin imputed onto Jesus, but Jesus' righteousness is imputed onto us. Remember, Jesus lived a perfect life, a sinless life, all the time he was here on earth. Never sinned. And so his sinlessness, his righteousness is imputed onto the believer. So that when God sees us, he doesn't see our sin And he doesn't even see our righteousness because we're sinful. Rather, he sees the righteousness of Jesus. When the Father looks at us, he sees the righteousness of his son, Jesus. So our sin is is imputed onto Jesus. Jesus' righteousness is imputed onto us. So Jesus is our propitiation. And the last sentence in our passage, says that not only, he's not just the propitiation for our sins only, but also for those of the whole world. Now, what does that mean, right? What does that mean? Is, that, is this universalism? Does this mean that every single person in the whole wide world is going to be saved from the punishment of their sins? Is Jesus the propitiation for every single person that ever lived? Does it matter even if we repent and put our faith and trust in Christ? Like in in 1 John 1 where it says, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins. If we don't do that, does does this mean that we also will be saved? That Jesus will be our propitiation if we don't confess that we sin? Well, let's look at this. Let's clear clear this up, okay? Because this is actually something that is a problem in... The modern day church it's very universalism is very rampant, it's running rampant in today's evangelical church scene. so it's important for us to look at this and it's important for us to figure out what's being said here. Remember this is John the Apostle John speaking to his Jewish brethren about God's church, right and how God's church includes gentiles not just Jews but gentiles also because the Jews at this time thought, you know, that God's kingdom was only for them. They had this, you know, uh, high view of themselves that, you know, since they were God's chosen people that they, only they had the right to access to God's kingdom. It was a very um, incorrect doctrine that they had uh, in the Old Testament. They were told that they were to be a light to the surrounding cultures in their region. To bring even the stranger to knowledge and faith in the one true living God. And so John is, is telling them, this isn't just for the, Jew, the Jewish brethren. This is for the Gentiles as well. Not just for you, not just for you Jewish people, but also for the whole world. He's our propitiation. If we repent and believe, He's our propitiation for our sins. But not for ours only, not for the Jews only, but also for the Gentiles, also for those of the whole world. That's what that means. All right? The blood of Jesus is offered as an atonement for anyone in the world who would repent and believe. It is not a universal appeasement of God. Jesus didn't die for the unrepentant sinner who dies in his sins. What he's saying is that the offer of salvation is given to anyone who repents and believes, both Jew and Gentile. John 11. uh, In John 11, Caiaphas, the high priest, he accidentally prophesies that Jesus is going to die for the whole nation, right? He, well, I won't get into exactly what that looks like, but let, let's look at this this particular verse in John eleven. It says, "Now he, Caiaphas, the high priest, he did not say this on his own initiative, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus was going to die for the nation, and not for the nation only, but in order that in order that he might also gather together." into one, the children of God who are scattered abroad. Same thing as in 1 John 2, 2. He's the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but also for the whole world. John's ministry was to the Jews and he's telling them, this isn't just for us, this is for the Gentiles also. John ministered to the Jews. Paul's ministry was to, to the Gentile, the Apostle Paul. He, he was ministering to the Gentiles. That was his assignment. That was his ministry. Romans 15, 16, Paul says, To be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles, ministering as a priest the gospel of God, so that my offering of the Gentiles may become acceptable, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. In Acts 13, 5, it says when they reached Salamis they began to proclaim the word of god in the synagogue in the synagogues of the jews and they also had john as their helper so john was ministering to the jews paul ministered to the gentiles so this isn't universalism this is for any and all who repent and believe that Jesus is our advocate. He advocates for us in that courtroom, that divine courtroom. And he is our propitiator. Jesus propitiates is the propitiation for our sins. That's that doctrine of imputation. Our sin is placed on Jesus' account and Jesus' righteousness is placed on our account. What an amazing piece of scripture. I thank God for this, these two verses, because without these two verses, first John would look like a, a death sentence. We don't do these things perfectly, do we? I don't. We need 1 John 2, 1 and 2. We need Jesus as our advocate. We need him as our propitiator. So if you haven't repented and put your faith and trust in Jesus and his work on the cross, today is the day of salvation. Today is the day to repent. Turn away from your sin and believe. Believe in in God's son, Jesus Christ, that he lived the perfect life, died on the cross for your sins, and then rose, rose again three days later and is now sitting at the right hand of the Father. That's how much Jesus loves us, that he would, he would leave his heavenly throne, come down, live that perfect life, and, and rescue sinners. It's an amazing act of love. It's amazing grace, as the song says. Amazing grace that saved a, saved a wretch like me. God's love is amazing. God's love is, is so unexplainable. But it's only when you experience his love that you could even begin to fathom it. So I pray that uh, anyone listening who doesn't know the Lord, doesn't know his love, his grace, that you would repent and put your faith and trust in Christ. He's our propitiator, he's our advocate, and he loves us. So that was First John 2, 1 and 2, and next time we will start in verse 3. I'll see you all next time.